0: But, uh, but there's a lot going on in the life of our community and we want you to be informed and uh, want you to participate and enjoy community life with us, so uh, that's what's, uh, what's going on there. But um, be honest, how many of you last week when you left sang Hakuna Matata? How many of you? All right. A few few honest people had a song and couldn't get out of their head. Last week, we talked about how life in the garden was perfect, and the man and his wife were naked and unashamed, and they were perfectly related to God and to one another, and everything was good as God had designed it to be, and they had no worries, right? Right? No worries, no shame, no fear, no violence. They could trust God and relax and enjoy His provision. They had work to do that was meaningful and purpose-filled and good in tending the garden and being with one another and being in relationship with God, but it was not burdensome. And there was joy and happiness and wonder. And they lived as God's vice regents over the planet, just as they had been designed. Now, we can only imagine what that would be like. Uh, compared with life in the garden, the most delightful day at the nicest beach with the whitest smoothest, most luxurious sand and the clearest blue water and eating all you can eat, lobsters and mangoes, all right? Uh, This is a good day. You can tell, right? Uh, You can have everything you could possibly imagine, and it's still not as good as life in the garden when everything was as it was designed to be. And they live in harmony with one another, with the creation. Even within themselves, there's no reason they need to hide anything from anybody, not from God, not from each other, not even from themselves. Everything is good. But life now is not like that is it? It's not at all like that. What happened? Well, we're going to find that out. We're going to look at the coming of the serpent and sin and shame in verses uh, 1 to 7 of Genesis chapter 3. So if you got your Bible, just open that front cover, go over a couple of pages, and you'll get there, Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, as you read this account, a lot of people get curious about the serpent. What kind of snake was it? Did it look like snakes look today? Uh, Was it a poisonous snake? Do you really believe that it talked? you know, what about other animals? Were other animals able to talk? And so that's why it doesn't strike her as curious that we have a talking snake in the garden. You know, is this kind of like Chronicles of Narnia where you've got the talking animals in the garden and outside there are not talking animals and, you know, what's going on there? Well, the answer is, I don't know. All right, write it down. I don't know. Um, the Bible does not tell us every que- the answer to every question that we would like to know the answer to. And that's one of the questions the Bible does not answer. The Bible is not concerned with filling in all our curiosity on some of these things. But what we do know is this is that the Bible in the book of Revelation refers to Satan as quote that old serpent And the implication of that passage is that the serpent that is judged and condemned at the end of all things and cast into hell is the same serpent who was here in the garden at the beginning of all things. And so I don't know if it is Satan speaking through the snake or if it's Satan taking on the form of a snake or exactly what's happening. But we do know that in some capacity Satan is involved such that the animal speaks to the woman. And uh, most Bible teachers believe that this is, that this is in fact, uh, an actual animal who is speaking with the voice of Satan to the woman. And remember, she's not suspicious like you and I are. You know, we've had enough traveling salesmen or telemarketers or other people try and sell us on the latest and greatest thing that we're all now suspicious. Our guard is up. But this is at a time when everything is perfect and good. And so this woman has no reason to distrust anybody or anything. And so Satan is going to try and lead her down the same path of rebellion that he has taken some of the angels out of heaven down. And he comes to her with a question. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Now, this seems like a good time, by the way, as your pastor. Let me just take an aside from the text for just a minute. All of the world's great heresies start out with this question, did God really say? All of them start out that way. Did God really say you must not do X and so? Did God really mean it when he said, and the lie is about to come? One of the reasons that we have God's Word written in a book and so much effort is made in making sure that we accurately translate the Word of God from the original manuscripts as closely as possible is that it matters what God said, and we want to follow it and obey it, so that when we have a question, did God really say, we can go, yes, He did, or, no, he didn't. This is what God said. And in fact, Satan, not in the form of the serpent, not only questions, he also distorts God's word. Because what had God said back in chapter 2, do you remember? He said, freely you may eat from all of the trees except one. What did Satan say? He said, did God really say, don't eat from all the trees in the garden? He turned what God said on its head and emphasized a restriction and, in fact, put in a total restriction where God had emphasized the abundance of the provision and the limitation of just one restriction, one particular tree. God said, eat from everything except for this one tree. Don't eat from that one. He is trying to make the woman think that God is unloving, that God is withholding from her something that she ought to have, that is rightfully hers. And so, he is emphasizing the restriction rather than the abundance of the provision like God did. Now, what's interesting in verse 2, if you look at it, is that the woman herself also distorts God's Word in a way. She says this, We may eat from the trees in the garden. Did she emphasize the abundance of it the way God did? No. Remember, God said, freely eat. He's he's emphasizing, look, there's gobs of stuff to eat from. And she says, we can eat. But God did say, quote, Now, this is dangerous. She's about to misquote God. You must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Did God say that? Well, he said part of that. But here's the thing. She de-emphasized the provision that God had emphasized, and then she added restrictions that God didn't. And then she de-emphasized the certainty of judgment, which God had emphasized. He said, you will surely die. You will certainly die, depending on how your translation reads, if you eat from this. But God didn't say anything about touching it. He didn't say they couldn't climb it. He didn't say they couldn't build a swing in it. He didn't say they couldn't uh, use branches off of it for firewood. He didn't say any of that. He just said, don't eat the fruit. And because he knows that the woman is already leaning a little bit toward his viewpoint, Satan then goes from distorting to outright denial. He says this, you will not surely die. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, you knowing good and evil. Now, this is a double-edged, wicked, nasty lie. What do we learn about the man and his wife in chapter 1 of Genesis? Remember, verse 26, 27, God says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. In other words... They are already like God. (laughs) And Satan is promising her, well, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. They already are. And then on top of that, he says, you will know good and evil. But what is going to happen is she's going to know evil from the inside as a doer of evil. Rather than like God does, knowing the difference between his character and rebellion against him. And so he has lied to her, and he has promised her that she will get something she's already got, which is likeness to God. And so uh, she is about to sin. And John, John, in his first letter in the New Testament, says that sin comes in three flavors. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and I learned it, the boastful pride of life. That, I think that's King James. But the, uh, the, I think NIV has it, the boasting of what he has and does. All right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Look at the, what the woman s- says here in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit was good for food lust of the flesh, that it was pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom, boastful pride. She took some and she ate it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and they ate it together, and they experienced evil from the inside, because they have rebelled against God and His Word. God had been very clear, and now they know good and evil. They would like to be good, but now they can't. And they know the difference, because everything was good, and now they're in sin. And they immediately recognize it. Let's read some more. Actually, uh, in verse 7 it says that they realized they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It's just the two of them in all the world. Why are they needing, feeling the need to clothe themselves? What's the big deal, right? The big deal is is that they now know what it's like to feel shame, and to have done something that you wish you could undo with everything that is within you, go back and go and undo, but they can't. And so their instinct is to hide, and their instinct is to cover over their shame in the only way that they know how. And so they stitch together some fig leaves, you know, a fig leaf is about that big, and so if you get enough of them, you can cover at least parts of yourself pretty easy. And they cover themselves, and then they're trying to cover their shame, and God shows up. Let's read on. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel." To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field and by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. God comes on the scene, and He is. she shows up in the cool of the day, as apparently was the custom that God would come, and in the evening, or maybe also in the morning, God would come In a visible presence and walk with the man and his wife. Now, I can't begin to imagine what that would be like. That the God of the universe comes down and meets with me. Years ago, there was a weird evangelist who talked about how God talked to him while he was shaving one morning. And I thought, I bet not, because. If God really appeared to you as a fallen human being, every time I read in my Bible where God shows up, what people do is they immediately go to the ground on their face and say, woe is me. I am a sinner and I am in the presence of God. And you feel aware of your sin. And that's what's happened to Adam and Eve. Is that God who held no fear for them as long as they were in perfect relationship with Him and were obedient to Him, now His presence is a fearful thing because God is completely holy. And He shows up, and all of a sudden, they run and hide like little kids. I always know when something has been going on. You know, in my house, I have four kids. I go downstairs, and all of a sudden, it gets quiet. <laughs> Dad's here, you know, (laughs) and uh, it's like, so what's going on, guys? (laughs) Nothing, (laughs) okay, and that's kind of the reaction that God is getting here from Adam and Eve. He calls out, where are you, Adam? Does he not know? Is it for his own benefit that he's curiously asking, "Uh, Adam, where are you? Over here behind the bush. You know, I mean, (laughs) you know, like God needs to be informed. No, that's not what's happening. What's happening is God is confronting Adam and his wife with their sin, and he's wanting them to recognize the fact that they're running and hiding from him is not a good thing. Even though that's their natural response, the fact that they're doing that indicates that there is the presence of sin in their heart. And he's wanting to give them an opportunity to repent and confess. And Adam says he was afraid because he was naked. Well, that's revelatory. You were naked before, weren't you, genius? Well, yeah. So what's changed? Have you eaten from the fruit I told you not to eat from? Yes. But he doesn't simply say yes, does he? He does the, he does kind of the razzle dazzle and gets a little shuffling off from his sin, right? And he says, Well, the woman, her fault, that you gave me, your fault, gave me the fruit and then I ate some. So, yeah, I did eat the fruit, but it was because of the woman that you put here, God. And so ultimately, you're responsible. See? No. Uh, and then so he says to the woman, "All right, what about it?" And she says, "Well, the serpent, she doesn't have she's smart enough not to blame God, points in her favor. Uh, she says, "Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate." But notice the the statement of responsibility in both cases is at the very end. And he says, "All right, we'll start with the serpent." And then we'll work our way back up the chain. And so he curses the serpent because Satan has used the serpent to deceive. He decides to pronounce the curse on the serpent first. Um, and and by the way, this is not simply you know like some little just so story out of Kipling. You know, how did a snake lose its legs or whatever, okay? This is God speaking not just to the serpent, but to the one who is controlling and manipulating the serpent, Satan himself. He says, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. And he says to the serpent, you're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to be below everything else. And then to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this is what theologians call, I'm going to give you about a $400 crossword puzzle word, the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. As soon as there is the first sin, there is the first statement that redemption is coming. And it's going it's to take a while. They don't realize it yet, but it's going to take a while. And the people who trust God's Word are going to be looking forward for this one who is going to be born, interestingly enough, not from a man, but the seed of the woman. We're going to find perfect fulfillment of that in Jesus, who has no human father and is born of a woman. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between you, between her seed and your seed, between Jesus and Satan, between those who follow the Redeemer and those who follow the serpent. And they're going to be at war. But the one who is to come is going to crush the serpent. I don't know how many of you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Um, It's a rough movie to watch. I have watched it once. I do not want to see it twice. Right? But one of the greatest scenes in all of film, as far as I'm concerned, is that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because where the battle in Jesus' Mind is one, is in the garden, when he says, not my will, but yours be done. At that moment, Satan is already defeated, though he doesn't know it. And and Gibson, the director, has that snake slithering through the garden, you know? And it's no accident, by the way, that victory takes place in a garden, because we're sin and failure took place was in a garden. And it's no accident that Jesus is hung on a tree because it was the tree that was the implement of sin. And so then he sees this snake and he walks over with his heel and there's that beautiful sound of the bones and that snake's head crunching. Jesus crushes the serpent. And this is all being foretold way back in the garden. Before they're cast out, before the judgment falls completely, God says, You've sinned, but a Redeemer is coming. And He will crush the serpent who led you into sin. The woman is cursed also. She now has pain in childbearing. I think that includes not just the pregnancy aspects. Uh, and all the delivery parts, but also the part of the fact that you, when you raise your children, any of you moms ever had a child that caused you pain? You have children, probably happened. Right? If, if it hadn't happened yet, it's because your kids aren't old enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a fact. Your kids are going to cause you pain as a parent. Okay? Hopefully it's temporary and not lifelong, but they cause you pain because they sin against you in the same way that we sin against God. And it's painful. And she and her husband are now going to be in combat. Instead of cooperating, they're going to be fighting. You haven't done this yet, you haven't been married long enough. Okay? But you're going to have warfare in your home at some level she he she he god says to her your desire will be for your husband by that she, he means that she will desire to rule over him and she but he but she is going to be ruled by her husband and it's not a good word by the way this is not the picture you get in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3 of a loving leader and a respectful follower and a husband who lays down his life for his wife. That is not this, what this passage is talking about. When it says, he will rule over you, what it means, it's a bad word. It's a word for domination, for authoritarianism. Or a, I'm the man of the house, so you get in line, woman. Okay? That is what it is. It's the law of the jungle taking over the life in the garden. Okay? In, in the real world, men are bigger and stronger most of the time than their wives. And so women, a lot of times, in a lot of cultures, get abused. And he, she's, he says, you're going to have a fight for control, and your husband, if he is a sinful man, is going to dominate you. And that's bad. It's the curse, okay? Uh, this perfect relationship that they had and enjoyed is going to be spoiled. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, these passages that talk about this uh, in in, a, in terms of roles and authority and submitting to Christ and laying your life down. This redeems this. But this is evil being done. And then to Adam he said, you're going to have toil. You're going to have pain. You're going to have a hard life on this planet. Uh, You're going to have thorns and thistles and disease and tornadoes and typhoons and mosquitoes and cancer, and this planet is not willingly going to support your existence. Or as Paul has it in Romans 8, the creation was subjected to frustration, so that formerly your work that gave you joy and happiness and a sense of purpose in the world is going to be a source of frustration and pain for you. How many of you men are looking forward to the day when you can retire? Okay, because here's the thing. If you're not retired yet, okay, here's the thing. Every, every career, every vocation eventually becomes a job. And you get tired. Real estate people get sick of looking at real estate. And you know, gallbladder surgeons get sick of looking at gallbladders. And nurses get sick of changing bedpans and giving injections. Believe it or not, okay? I think I had some that took delight in it. But uh, <laughs> but but every job that you have—transmission specialist, nurse, homemaker, whatever—there are days when you get up and it is frustrating and it is toil and it's painful and it's the curse and he says you're going to suffer and fight and sweat all the way through your life until you go back to the dirt you came from that's pretty grim but it's not over yet From which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, they are going to die, but God doesn't kill them immediately, He allows them to live. And so, Adam, as a sign of trusting God, renames his wife. Remember their names before? He was called man-ish, and she was Isha, the woman. feminine form, same word, like Carl and Carla. We, remember? Okay. Now he says, I'm going to be called Adam, another word for man, and you're going to be called Eve. Her name means living. And it's a sign that God, that they believe that God in His grace has not judged them. And they are trusting God for their life. So she's going to be the mother of all of the living. God doesn't judge us immediately. He's going to allow us to live. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. But we're going to have life even though we've committed a capital crime against God, even though we deserve death, God is giving us life. And we're trusting in the Redeemer that God promised, even as He cursed us. And then God does something interesting. It says that He took skins and clothed them. God is teaching them that Your sin and my sin and teaching them that their sin is serious business. I don't know how many of you have trees in your yard, but, you know, I love the fact that we have great big trees in our yard. I do not love the fact that I have to rake all the leaves. Uh, But, you know, the thing about leaves is that they grow back every year, Right? leaves fall off. Even on an evergreen tree, leaves fall off and then they they get new ones. And God is telling them, look, your sin cannot be covered by something that just kind of renews itself. You can't just cover your shame by something you pluck off a bush somewhere and stitch together. Okay? You, by your own effort, cannot deal with your guilt and sin and shame you're going to have to have something a little more severe. You're going to have to have death. If you want your sin to be covered, it's going to be through blood because it's still a capital crime. Something has to die. Someone, specifically, has to die for your sin to be covered. And he's going to give them a picture of that. The sacrifice of the life of these animals so that they can have something to wear to cover their sin and shame. It is God who clothes them. It is God who covers their sin and their shame. It's also God who judges, but it's the God who judges who also gives grace. And he drives them out of the garden also in an act of grace. Because if they eat from the tree of life in their current state of being in sin and rebellion against God, they're going to live forever in sin and rebellion against God. Do you know what that is? It's a good description of being in hell. Of living your life forever in rebellion against God. And God doesn't want them to experience that. So he drives them out of the garden, away from the tree of life, puts a puts an angel, a cherubim, actually more than one because it's that I am is plural, cherubim, to guard the garden. I don't know what these things look like. Apparently they have six wings and fly and guard the holiness of God, according to Isaiah, uh, according to um, Revelation, according to Ezekiel. And I don't know how loud an angel can shout, but apparently when they do, it shakes a building. These are powerful, fearsome creatures. And God sets them to guard the way, to protect man from his own foolishness. In case he would ever try to go back there and die, or actually not die, but live eternally separated from him. Now, what are we to learn from this passage here? Number one, we learn what's wrong with the world, and that's important. Anybody ever ask you, why is there so much evil in the world? This is the reason. It is because our first parents sinned and rebelled against God, and ever since then, they have passed down to us a propensity toward and a desire for sin and rebellion against God. And that affects not just us and not just our relationships with each other and not just our relationship with God, but it actually affects the created world that we live in. And so why are there hurricanes? Well, because the creation is literally in agony having sinful people living in it. Our sin curses this planet. And so while it gives us life it does not do so willingly. It is subjected to frustration. Why is there so much evil in the world? Sin and brought death and evil into the world. We learn about God's promised redemption and how gracious an amazingly loving God is. That where there is the first sin, there is the first offer of salvation. Where Adam and Eve had transgressed God's explicit command, which He had explicitly spoken to them in person, they broke it. And yet God was so gracious, He said, Trust me, a Redeemer's coming Life is going to be hard, but a Redeemer is coming to reverse the curse, to overturn the serpent, to turn back the clock, as it were, and put things right again. Let me ask a question here as we close. Have you trusted in the Word of God and obeyed it about the one who was come because the redeemer is not still coming in the way that he was coming for adam and eve he now has come he has crushed the serpent he has paid with his blood for your sin so that your sin and shame can be covered the perfect lamb of god offered his life for yours So that your capital offense against God could be paid for. Have you trusted the word of God? Because the Redeemer is coming again also. Except when He comes, it will not be, as the Scripture says, it will not be for the salvation from sin, but for judgment and then for the restoration of all things. And until that day comes, or until your death, whichever comes first, you have a choice to make, either to trust in the Word of God, that the Redeemer that He promised has come, and that when He came, His shed blood covers over your sin as you trust in Him. Or, to make this choice, Has God said? Which have you made? Which are you going to make? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe in the Word of God and what it says about the Redeemer who now has come for His people. Let's pray. God, our Father.